0: Thanks, Fabian, and good morning, and it's great to see you. Fabian has prayed. My name's Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's so good to be together this morning. Those of you here in the sanctuary, those who are in the fellowship hall, those online, it's great to be together at this 9 a.m. service. I'm glad you, you decided to be with us. Uh, as Amelia said earlier, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, this extremely important week uh, in the life of God's people uh, as we will celebrate and worship the God who redeems and restores through a cross and an empty tomb. And so I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll invite others to come with you and to join us. Uh, maybe a neighbor or a coworker, worker uh, Maybe somebody you've been praying for uh, is now is an opportunity for you to, to just extend an invitation. and Say, come join us for, uh, for the things we've got going on next week. If you've been here, uh, then you know we've been spending this season of Lent uh, in the Old Testament prophet Amos. Amos is a simple uh, shepherd turned prophet. Uh, He lived in the southern kingdom of Judah in 8th century B.C. And and while he was living in the south, he observed the people of God living in the northern kingdom of Israel. And what he sees is a religion that is abhorrent to God. It is a religion full of uh, traditionalism and formalism. It serves for the people of God as a mask to cover up the spiritual reality that the lives of God's people are not what God commands. The lives of God's people are not what God desires. And so Amos travels north to preach God's word and to call the people of God to repentance and into true religion. The people of God were failing to do the, the very things God commanded. The two things that God commands his people to do. They were failing to love God and they were failing to love their neighbor. They loved themselves more than they loved their neighbor. If you've been here, you, you've seen they, they were economically dishonest. They were greedy. They were self-serving. God had blessed Israel with material possessions, and instead of sharing their possessions with those who had less, they were exploiting the poor. Okay. Something we can learn is that if, uh, if we believe as Christians God owns all things, and that all that we have is a gift from God, then, and we've been blessed with much, and we don't share with those who have less and are in need The Bible doesn't call that being stingy. The Bible calls that being a thief. It is thievery from God, and Israel is guilty of not loving their neighbor. They also are guilty of of not loving God. They love themselves more than they love God. Their religion is hollow. They did the right things. They showed up for worship. They offered sacrifices. They played incredible music, but as they outwardly performed their religious duties, Amos 8 tells us, That they were more concerned about looking at their watches and wondering uh, if worship was going to be over on time. I bet none of us can relate to that, right? The Israelites, they were showing up for worship, but they were more concerned with ending on time so that they could get back to the things they loved most. Drinking and eating and making money and working. So we can do the right things and we can look good on the outside, but if we want to understand what our true God really is, we have to examine what we give our hearts to. What do you think about the most? What has you up at night? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Israel is guilty of not loving God and not loving their neighbor. And so Amos is crying out for the people of God to face their sins. Which is why we've been preaching Amos through this uh, this season of Lent. Because Lent is a season for God's people to face sin. To confess the ways that we have failed to love God and have failed to love neighbor. And as we face sin, we face the way that sin has created ruin. Sin has ruined relationship with God. It's ruined relationship with others and it's ruined relationship with this world. On Monday night, I was watching my oldest son's uh, lacrosse practice and talking to a close friend who was there with me watching his son practice, and in that moment, I got a text that made my heart drop, and he could tell something wasn't right, and he asked me, are, are you okay? And I just said, man, I, I hate the brokenness and simpleness of this world. Someone had just texted me about something really hard that they were going through, and then I joked with him, man, it would be nice sometimes to not feel the burden and sting of sin and, and living in a sinful world. But then he and I started to share how much uh, of that kind of life would be so hollow. Coping, pretending, numbing, running away. And that we would rather face the ruins and face the sin so that we can hold on to the hope of what Jesus has promised. Because Jesus has promised to restore the ruins. Jesus has promised to rebuild what is broken. And holding on to this hope, it lifts us out of despair and it fuels us for how to live and engage in our tragic world. And this morning, we come to the end of Amos. And for nine chapters, Amos has been crying out, face the ruins, face your sin. And at the very end, he gives us a picture of God's restoration plan. And I pray that it gives us hope this morning. And I pray that it fuels and informs how we live in this world. And so if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to look at the very end of Amos 9, verses 11 through 15. I want you to hear God's word to us this morning. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. God, we need to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you take the scriptures that were just read and bring them to life. Illumine our minds, soften our hearts, plant your word deep in us that we might bear fruit because we've encountered you, the living God. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you in this time and that you would speak to us, Jesus, and that we might be transformed. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, in the fall of 2009, so you can do the math, uh, I was beginning my second year of campus ministry at UNC Chapel Hill. And Dr. Bart Ehrman, a distinguished religion professor who is a self-proclaimed agnostic atheist, uh, also an antagonist of Christianity, was scheduled to debate Dinesh D'Souza, a Christian public intellectual political advisor, among other things. And the debate was to be held at Memorial Hall Uh, Over 1,000 people would be in attendance. Now, by my second year of being at UNC, I had already encountered many students who had had their faith in Jesus deconstructed uh, by Bart Ehrman in one of his classes or by one of his books, and and they found themselves questioning and doubting the veracity of Christianity. And so needless to say, I was uh, ready for Dinesh D'Souza to put Bart Ehrman in his place or at least check him a little bit. And I would find out that Bart Ehrman is is a pretty good debater. At the very end of the debate, the question rose around evil and suffering in in this world and how a good good God might allow it. And honestly, I can't remember what Dinesh D'Souza said. I I do remember feeling I was left wanting more from him. And and then Bart Ehrman chimed in, and he he said this. I'm not a Christian, so I don't believe this. But if I were a Christian, my response to this question would would be to point everyone to what God has promised he would ultimately, that he will ultimately do in the restoration of the world in the new heavens and the new earth. And I, I was shocked. And then he went on to describe how the Bible talks about God's blueprint of restoration for the ruins that sin has caused. And it was beautiful. And I remember thinking, dang it, Dinesh, that was your answer, man. Come on. And then I remember thinking, well, Bart Ehrman gave Christianity's answer, but he still has to give his answer. He has to provide an answer for the hope someone has in which we inevitably face the ruins of this world, and you need an answer. The Christian's response to the hope we have when facing the ruins of this world, it is different than any other belief system in this world. We don't think that someone is saved into some ethereal heaven when we die or that someone's going to be reincarnated into a different life or that all that exists is this life and then after death it's nothing or you fill in the blank with the many beliefs that are in our world these days. The Bible's answer, therefore the Christian's answer, is that God has promised to restore this very earth and to make it what he's always intended it to be from the very beginning of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that God will restore and God will rebuild. He will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Amos ends his preaching with this hopeful vision in our passage. And I want you to see that it involves three things. Community, earth, and security. Those are the three things we're going to look at. Community, you see this in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, in that day, in other words, when the night ends, when darkness is no more, in that day, God says... I will raise up, I will repair, I will rebuild. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. What what does it mean to possess the remnant of Edom? The, The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the eldest son of Isaac. If you were to read many of the prophets, Edom and the Edomites are used symbolically as the embodiment of the hostile world towards the kingdom of God. The Edomites represented those who were against God's people. And so for Amos to speak of the overthrowing of Edom, it is to say that there, is, there will be an end to any and all hostility that exists between people. It is a vision of unity and harmony in community. In verse 12, God says, And I will possess all the nations called by my name, which is sometimes in Scripture a reference to marriage. For instance, Isaiah 4 verse 1, Women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. The meaning here is that when God brings restoration, there will be an intimate oneness in community. There will be no divisions. There will be no barriers. There will be no walls of hostility. As we face the ruins of this world, We all feel how sin has damaged and ruined relationships. Rather than unity, we experience division. Rather than love, we experience strife. Rather than intimacy, we experience distance. Where do you feel the sting of sin and the ruins of relationship? If you had to think about one person that you feel at odds with right now, tension with, who comes to your mind? Maybe it's a friend a co-worker, a spouse, a family member. We live in a world where relationships are ruined and damaged because of sin, and and we can take this beyond just personal relationships. Sin causes division and hostility between nations, Ukraine and Russia, between economic classes, the rich and the poor, between political parties, Democrats and Republicans. The divisions and the hostilities are everywhere, the amount of tribal wars and debates, that are us versus them are exhausting for me to even try to keep up with. I mean, years ago, I saw a video about a Rwandan woman who lost her husband and five children in the Rwandan genocide. Genocide. Maybe you saw this, it was a popular video. She and her family lived next door to their neighbors for 10 years. And when the war started, the two tribes, uh, the Hutu and the Tutsis clashed, and the next door neighbor, the husband, walked 10 yards to their house with a machete in hand and slaughtered her husband and her children. And the CNN reporter was interviewing her on on a story of how reconciliation is possible. And the reporter said, how can you forgive your neighbor for doing this? And her reply was simple, because I'm a Christian. Forgiveness and unity is central to Christianity. Now forgiveness is, is actually a debated thing in our cultural moment right now. Uh, Tim Keller has a new book on forgiveness that I highly recommend. And in his book, he he writes about three pressures in our current moment around forgiveness. There are pressures by some to forgive non-conditionally, which he calls cheap grace. There are pressures to transactionally forgive if the perpetrator merits forgiveness, which he calls little grace. And there are pressures to not forgive at all because justice demands punishment, which he calls no grace. And he says all these are in contrast to how the Bible talks about forgiveness, which is costly grace. That forgiveness is able to be extended in the Christian's life because we understand the cost of our own forgiveness. The Father sent His Son to be crucified on a cross so that we could be forgiven and brought into community with God. And because of this costly grace, we are able to bear the cost of forgiveness toward others. We don't make people pay. We don't hold things against others, and this is costly because we give up our control. We give up our power over another. Forgiveness, it's key to genuine community. So where do you need to extend forgiveness? Where do you need to to ask for forgiveness? The vision of the Christian life is one of intimate oneness in community. No division, no hostility. It's our hope. And it informs how we live in this world. The end of Amos 9 is not only a vision of a restored community, it's also one of a restored creation. The earth, verses 13 to 14. Look at verse 13. Behold, the days are coming when plowmen shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. There will be such an abundance of food and reaping that there won't be enough time to reap and then replant. Right? This is a picture of one who's, who's treading grapes and then it's time to plant again. It's a vision of a harvest so great that the mountains are flowing with the best Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir the world has ever tasted. Wine is flowing from the mountains. Now obviously Amos is speaking in hyperbole, but he is painting a vision of a physically restored creation. It is the restoration of Eden. That the days are coming when there will be no sickness, nor poverty, nor hunger, nor cancer, nor dementia. There will be no death, nor tears. God will dwell with his people in a restored earth without any ruin. And the reason we can have this hope is because our creator was clothed in flesh, born in a dirty manger in a smelly manger, living in a broken world, and he was killed on a cross. And three days later, he would rise from the grave with a renewed physical body, pointing to the day when not only bodies will be restored, but the whole physical creation, which has been groaning and crying out for its restoration, will finally be restored. And when that day comes, we will dance And we will sing and we will cook the best meals and we will drink the best drink. We will grow the best tomatoes we've ever seen in our gardens. We will grow the most beautiful flowers and have fields with the best manicured grass. There will be no weeds. We will watch the best art performances and listen to the best music. We will dwell in the beautiful city of God. This is our hope. And it informs how we live right now. Because every single one of you is uniquely made and uniquely gifted. And God has created you in his image for a purpose, to use you in your uniqueness and giftings to make this world more like Eden. This is your calling. Your calling is not a certain career. Your calling is to labor toward a restored Eden, which can involve a job but it also may, may mean leaving a certain job and going to another job. Your calling is not solely to be a nice person and invite someone to church on Easter Sunday and occasionally share your faith in Jesus with someone, though that those are good things. Your calling is to live entirely working, residing, playing, towards the end of making the physical world look more like the new heavens and the new earth. Well, how do you do that? It takes imagination. It takes imagination and children have so much to teach adults about imagination. It doesn't take much to get a child dreaming, right? One quick line, once upon a time and a child's imagining. On any given day, my three children will be using sticks to imagine a sword fight. My littlest uses his toys and his his trucks to imagine races and crashes. My two oldest will imagine taking the winning shot or throwing the winning pitch. We've been given the greatest story to imagine and live our lives by. God restoring what God intended the world to be in Genesis 1-2. to And what God says the world will be in places like Amos 9 and Revelation 21. So our calling is to allow this vision to captivate our imagination. So that when you are working at the hospital, it's not just a job. It's a calling to bring healing to the physical body. When you're teaching a class, it's not just a job. It's a calling to shape and form students and help them live with a calling into this world. When you're designing a building as an architect, it's not just a job. It's a calling to see something beautiful replace something broken or something beautiful go where nothing has ever been. When you're working for a business, it's not just a job to make money. It's a calling to help the business bring restoration. That could be economically, it could be in what the business produces or sells. When you're taking care of children, it's not just a job. It's a calling to love and form your children to know Jesus so that they can live with purpose and use their uniqueness and gifts for the restoration of the world. So no matter what you do as a job, no matter where you live or what you do for fun, your calling is to engage the world with imagination, to see the realities of what is to come and the restored earth made visible on earth right now. Because Jesus did not come to save you out of this world, but to save you to himself for the sake of the world, for the physical world. The vision here is restoration that includes community and earth, and lastly, It it includes security. We see this in verse 15. If you've been with us in this series, Amos, the prophet, he's wrestling with the doctrine of security. He's calling to question all those who claim to be Israelites. Are you truly Israelites? Are they really believers and followers of God? Now, the apostle Peter does something similar to Christians in the New Testament when he writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Amos and Peter, what they're, they're doing, it's helpful in the Christian's life to examine and ask ourselves, is what I confess, what I say I believe, what I truly believe? Does my life match my, my profession? Not for the purpose of questioning one's salvation or making you feel paranoid that you might not really be a Christian, but, the, but so that you can persevere to the end by putting your hope and giving your allegiance to the one who is faithful and able to save. The vision Amos gives us shows us where our security comes from. Uh, Verse 15, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. We live in an unsettling world, a tragic world, where we face the ruin caused by sin, but we can remain secure now and in eternity because God has pledged and God has spoken. Verse 11, I will raise up. I will rebuild. I will repair. Verse 15, says the Lord your God. God's pledge and God's word gives us security. And he is faithful. Numbers twenty-three nineteen: God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? There is nothing more certain than this vision of restoration. And if God's word and God's pledge isn't enough for you, verse 11 gives us the most confidence and the best reason to trust the faithfulness of God in accomplishing this vision of restoration because verse 11 has already happened. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David. Come on, I know it's not Easter yet, but that day has already come. The resurrection of the booth of David has taken place. How do we know this vision of restoration will happen? Because in that day, 2,000 plus years ago, after the darkness and the night of the cross, the day would come when Christ would be raised from the dead. The booth of David would be raised up. Now, most scholars think booth is referring to the Feast of Booths, which was an Old Testament feast where the king took the central place standing at the altar of God and would act out his role as the middleman or the mediator between God and God's people. One from the house of David, King Jesus, would lay down his life in death as a sacrifice on the altar of God. He would take our place. Three days later, he would rise. The perfect royal mediator. His life His death, His resurrection, bringing all who trust in Him into everything that He secures. And Jesus secures a restored community. Every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather in unity around the throne of Christ. And He secures a restored earth, the new city where death and tears are no more. A people and a land. What has been promised from the beginning will happen because Christ has secured it. So Christ Central, we must face the ruins. We must see the ruin that sin has caused in relationships with others, our relationship to earth, and our relationship with God. And as we face the ruins, the appropriate response is confession. God, we fail. God, we can't. God, we are powerless. And then we turn to Jesus, and we hear God say, like he does in our passage, I will. I will raise up. I will repair. I will rebuild. I will restore. Augustine of Hippo was a North African bishop who lived in the days of the fall of Rome, the empire that everyone thought was indestructible. Rome would ultimately fall. Take heed unless we fall. In Augustine's world, it was plunged in the darkness at the fall of Rome, and it would take centuries, if you know your history, for it to recover. But this is what Augustine wrote in the midst of the fall of Rome. He says, the days are coming when there will be an end to every earthly city. Only the city of God will remain. Only the city of God will remain. I'm not sure what you're facing. And I'm not sure what we all will face in the future. But I am certain of what Augustine said. Our hope is in the city of God. The new heavens and the new earth, a restoration of all things. The days are coming. It may not be in our timing, but the days are coming. Let's pray. Lord God, give us hope and give us vision and give us an imagination by your spirit that we might live lives in this broken world that's filled with ruin. And may we labor unto glory when everything is made new and we dwell unified with one another around your throne in the new city, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.